I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Patrick Collison, co-founder of Stripe, a financial software company that helps businesses manage their online and mobile transactions. Stripe handles billions of dollars of transactions every year, helping businesses and nonprofits accept payments and donations from customers worldwide. These businesses range from Adidas to Best Buy, Facebook, Warby Parker, Lyft, Twitter, Kickstarter, and nonprofits like NPR. Patrick started Stripe in 2009 when he was 21 years old with his younger brother, John. He is originally from Dromineer, Ireland, which has a population of roughly 70 people. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So you were 21 when you launched Stripe. What took so long? It actually took us a little bit longer to launch Stripe. Uh, I was 21 when we started working on it full time. As it happens, uh, John and I, we, we'd spend quite a while you know, working on various projects together. But for us, this was after you know, many years of uh, hacking on all sorts of sort of side projects and you know, various pursuits, most of which didn't go anywhere, to be clear. If you're somebody listening and financial software seems a bit esoteric, what are some examples of problems or uses for Stripe? So let's say, for instance, I make clothes and I want to sell them online. How can Stripe right. help me? Well, I think you're right that when you talk about sort of financial software or something like that, it sort of immediately uh, has this kind of veneer of being somewhat arcane and you wonder, well, what exactly are you doing? But for us, you know, it was a very concrete, tangible and, and sort of personal issue that, that you know, we had faced many times. It's just the basic matter of I've built something online. I've created a website. I, I have a mobile app. Um, I, there's some service I want to offer. I just want to get money from my customers. And so you, you need something to go from, again, having a website to sort of to actually being an, an internet business. And the thing that was so surprising to us was that kind of making that transition uh, was, was sort of previously so difficult uh, in that, you know, in 2009, 2010, hosting was becoming much more straightforward. And there were all these, you know, quite effective companies that made it much easier to, to build a website. And then you go and you try to handle you know, the, the, the financial aspect of it, just some way to charge your customers. And then you to go talk to, to all these you know, traditional banks, and they didn't quite understand the Internet, and you'd have to go fill out all this paperwork. And you know, it sort of felt like a mortgage application. John and I were kind of searching for the, the kind of technology-enabled version of this, the version you, just, you go to a website, you sign up for it, and you can start charging your customers. We kind of assumed that this naturally, that this must exist. Uh, and it was only after kind of several weeks of, of hunting for this company that we kind of came to, to realize that maybe it didn't. It's been said that Jack Dorsey launched Square to help make payments easier in the physical world, just as Stripe is helping to make payments easier in the virtual world. And when Stripe came out, I thought, oh, Stripe, the name sounds so similar to Square. But the name of the company wasn't originally Stripe. Uh, can you tell me what That's the original right. name was? The original name for the company was Dev Payments, uh, and actually the way we kind of wrote that was with these slash characters, uh, and so it was slash dev slash payments. Mm -hmm. And that was actually sort of a, a reference to this kind of obscure part of, of Unix, the, the operating system, 
And so as developers, we thought there was a, a kind of clever name. Um, mm. But as you might imagine, the rest of the world wasn't sort of necessarily so enamored. And, you know, we'd, we'd go have this meeting with some fancy bank or something like that. And, you know, we, we might feel like we're making some progress. And then at the end of the meeting, they would ask what, uh, what, what our name was. And we'd sort of tell them. And you could sort of see their enthusiasm uh, dim, not insubstantially. Mm. Uh, and so after a lot of this experience, we decided that uh, it might behoove us to find something a bit better. Stripe, the domain name, was owned by, uh, coincidentally, an MIT alum. That's right. We eventually found that uh, Stripe.com was owned by, as you say, uh, uh, well, I'm not sure if I can say a fellow MIT alum being, being a mere dropout, but someone who'd had a little bit more academic success at MIT than I had, um, and I think he took some pity on us and uh, was willing to, to, to part with the name. And uh, you know, the, the funny thing is, we actually weren't sure at the time if Stripe was a better name. But we decided that if we couldn't come up with a better name by December 20th, I think, I think it was December 20th, 2010, we would just default to Stripe. And so uh, we defaulted. I want to understand how you stumbled here. Uh, it seems like an unlikely company to be starting having grown up in rural Ireland. And I want to talk a bit about your upbringing, your parents, Lily and Dennis. Uh, Lily was a microbiologist who That's right. started her own company. Can you give me some background on that? Sure. Uh, so... As you say, she she went to school to uh, train as a microbiologist, and she worked at Abbott, the pharmaceutical company. Uh, And then when I was born, I think she decided that she was uh, going to go care for me uh, full-time. And then after a couple of weeks, realized that I wasn't all that interesting or engaging, and so needed to figure out something uh, better to do with her time. Uh, and so she started this corporate training company called SQT. Now you husband. say she decided to, to raise you, but wasn't there a little uh, nudge by her company to, to raise you? Wasn't there a letter that uh, her employer gave her? That's right. Certainly back in 1988, Ireland, it, it was still a, a quite Catholic place. Uh, and there was certainly a very strong expectation that uh, she would go and become a, a full-time mother at home. There was a a letter from her employer of the time congratulating her on the on the birth of her son again as a as a full time mother and I think she took some umbrage at that. <laughs> you mean before she had told the company that she was going to do that, right? Dennis, your father uh, is an electrical engineer. Did he start or buy a hotel uh, to run? That's right. So. I was born in Limerick uh, in Ireland and lived there for the first couple of years of my life. And then when I was five or six, dad decided to to buy this uh, very tiny hotel by the shores of Loch Derg in Ireland, uh, in the village of Drummondier. And the hotel, I think at the time, had 12 bedrooms or thereabouts. And, and that's where I spent most of my childhood. What were some defining features of your childhood? I mean, here you are, you're heavy into technology now. It doesn't seem like technology was a, was a likely uh, part of that. Germany isn't quite Silicon Valley. Right. right. So what were dominant features of your childhood? It may, maybe it goes without saying, but uh, it was very rural. Um, our house was surrounded by farms. And so my friends were broadly dispersed and really none of them were uh, within walking distance. Uh, it would always require sort of parental transportation. And so um, the, the sort of the main characteristic is some degree of isolation. And, you know, that, that sounds, I guess, quite negative, And I really don't mean it that way at all. And uh, maybe a sort of 
another uh, framing of it would be having to sort of uh, construct our own worlds um, and, and sort of figure out our, our own pursuits. But I, I really remember kind of coming home from school every day and uh, spending a huge amount of my time reading. Uh, the, the sort of standard routine was to go from school to the library, um, get two books from the library, go home, read the two books, um, and then repeat the next day. We had the time and this and the space to do that. I have very fond memories of it. And then, you know, w- once I turned, I believe, around uh, 12 or 13, maybe 14, we finally got a, a proper satellite internet connection. And the satellite aspect was kind of salient because the the phone line that ran to our house was of such poor quality that it could barely support the internet. What was most striking to you about the internet? What what was so magnetic for you about that world that you wanted to be a part of it? You know, I found computers magnetic even even before the internet. Uh, we got our first computer when I was I guess about 8. It just the the whole thing seemed seemed so magical. And um, this striking device capable of all of these things despite its, you know, diminutive size. Certainly at that age, I wasn't really able to uh, sort of fit all the pieces together and to understand how, you know, electrons moving in wires added up to kind of pixels on screens. Uh, But I did know that I I really wanted to understand it. Computers themselves, they they, they really seemed the most magical thing uh, to me that I'd stumbled across. When you were 16 years old, you won a science award. It was the 41st Young Scientist of the Year Award in Ireland. And you helped to create a new version of an artificial intelligence computer language called LISP. Was that the first time that you got this national recognition? What did that do for you? This science contest was something that had been kind of on my radar for some number of years. It's run annually after Christmas, and my parents had brought me to it fairly frequently during my childhood. I, I really found the the exhibition and the the sort of carnival of science that it was um, to be to be really cool. The first thing I ever entered with was a fairly direct artificial intelligence programming project where I was trying to build what's currently known as a bot. And so I guess I was 15 years too soon. It was a bot that talked to lots of people over sort of instant messaging and tried to learn from those conversations. That bot won second place overall. I wanted to enter again the next year. And so I worked on something slightly different, which was a new kind of web framework, but written, as you say, in this kind of artificial intelligence programming language called Lisp. That was the project that that ended up winning. Now, what were, uh, this might seem non sequitur, what were some odd jobs you had while you were living in rural Ireland? I worked on creating a website for for the school I first went to. And then my uncle uh, owned a pub in in Drummanier, and he used to have a hard time uh, synchronizing all the the cash registers in the pub. Um, And so I I think that may actually have been the first job I was ever paid for. Um, Mm. I think I helped him program his cash registers, and then he Mm. gave me 20 euro. You started your first company when you were still in your teens. It was called Octomatic. Uh, You were at MIT, and it was basically a company whose ambition was to compete with eBay. You worked on that with your brother or on your own? Uh, With my brother. I'd started college a year early, and so John and I decided to just go work on some kind of software project slash company together. And that sort of became Octomatic. This was not your first time in the United States. Uh, you had come once before to Stanford. What were your impressions of Stanford or of of the United States? It was really a striking trip. Um, 
well, I suppose it was the first time I'd ever met a community of people uh, interested in programming. And then, of course, Stanford itself uh, is, is so implausibly pristine and sort of on another plane to anything I'd ever encountered before. And before that trip, I'd never considered uh, going to school outside of Ireland. But after having seen Stanford, it, it seemed like I, uh, I, I had to at least try. Did you apply to Stanford? I did. I applied to um, four U.S. schools, of which Stanford was one. Um, the, the one I really wanted to go to was was MIT because MIT was the school that uh, still took Lisp, this this programming language, really seriously. Uh, and so I was I was very crestfallen when I got to MIT in two thousand and six. And that first fall semester, you know, they, they had this famous class six double oh one that taught Lisp to to kind of incoming freshmen. And they they announced the cancellation of it that that semester that I started. What a typical freshman woe! I'm glad you 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 share my pain. <laughs> I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Patrick Collison, co-founder of Stripe. We'll hear more from Patrick coming up. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Patrick Collison, co-founder of Stripe, a financial service software platform that powers e-commerce features for more than 100,000 businesses and nonprofits globally in countries ranging from Japan to Cuba, Mexico, and Australia. Patrick was born in 1988 in Ireland. So you're at MIT. You built Octomatic. It was sold for $5 million uh, to live current media with the help of Y Combinator. That was sort of like the incubator that you were accepted to that gave you your first twenty dollars or $30,000 or so. And then here you were embarking on your next project. What were some apps you flirted with starting or companies you flirted with starting before you came to Stripe? The big thing that John and I were sort of interested in in parallel at the time uh, was was the iPhone um, and the sort of new possibilities afforded by it. Uh, and we'd actually worked together on uh, the, these apps that stored a copy of Wikipedia on the iPhone uh, so you could read it uh, without having internet access. Uh, and so when you're traveling or when you're when you were on the proverbial mountaintop or something like that, you still had access to sort of the sum total of human knowledge uh, in in, in your hands. Um, And then we, when the App Store came out, we sort of made these apps available for sale and, you know, didn't make a whole lot of revenue, but it was was enough to be quite meaningful for us as college students. Uh, and so we were interested in that and that direction and Wikipedia and sort of collaborative, you know, information, curation, cultivation, generation, uh, but we were also kind of interested in the fact that these apps were uh, the first things we'd ever built that we that we had charged for, mm. and we we kind of thought that was sort of striking in some way. And that why had we never charged for anything else? And we realized it was because the app store made it so straightforward uh, and so easy. When when you thought about that, that seemed like a sort of a deep fact that here we we had this business and we were investing in it and we were creating things for it and we were kind of really taking it seriously in a way that wouldn't have happened had it been difficult to charge. It had kind of really changed our trajectory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so then as we thought about that kind of more broadly outside of the App Store with, with regard to you know, the Internet as, as a whole, the fact that it seemed so 
so difficult to to build a business seemed like it might not just cause some unnecessary pain, but it might actually change the number of and the kinds of businesses that get started. It might have this kind of uh, chilling effect on on people's you know willingness and ability to kind of to get off the ground and to sort of get that nascent thing started. And, and so the, these other apps that we were building, sort of in parallel uh, to, to Stripe, they were actually quite influential in in <laughs> causing us to pursue Stripe itself. Now, you did what all programmers do to start this idea or to build this prototype. You went on vacation to Argentina. Argentina is a hacker's paradise, uh, interestingly enough. Why is that? (laughs) So uh, it was January in Boston, and we decided we should go somewhere else to work for the month and decided we we should look for some place with good weather, uh, which probably meant the Southern Hemisphere, um, that was affordable on student budgets. Um, and where things were open late uh, into the night uh, so that you could sort of work a, a programmer's schedule and still be able to, to find dinner. It seemed like Buenos Aires, from everything we'd read, really uh, uh, fit these criteria. And we, and we were actually influenced by um, by the writings um, of a guy uh, whose name I'll probably mispronounce, uh, Maciej Sadlowski. But he has this wonderful blog and sort of travelogue at idlewords.com. And it's still going. He's actually... He was very recently in Antarctica. But he had written in kind of effusive terms about the experience of working in and being in Buenos Aires. Uh, and uh, and so off we went. And the, the reason I, I, I mentioned Maciej uh, is because uh, he, he is, in fact, now a Stripe user. Uh, and so the whole thing comes uh, full circle. Now, here you were, you and your brother, building this financial service prototype. What did that right. look like in its most nascent or skeletal form? It was... A website where you could fill out some basic information about your business, and then an incredibly straightforward um, and and sort of simple API for charging credit cards, and eventually having the money appear in your bank account. There was no link yet to any financial institution. You were just building kind of the front end, right? That's roughly right. We actually knew somebody who worked at another payments company, um, and he agreed to sort of help us kind of wire these up together for for, for the beta uh, and to sort of test some of the uh, initial transactions out. And so it wasn't properly integrated into any financial backend, but it sort of, uh, you know, it was sort of held together enough that you could kind of squint and get a sense for what the experience might be. What did some of these sort of, um, you know, glue and tape uh, versions look like? What were some of those earliest transactions and with whom? We gave access to some of our friends. Uh, and because we'd been through y, Combina- y Combinator before with Octomatic, we had some friends who themselves were running companies or were entrepreneurs. Uh, really, we pestered them uh, on, until they integrated. And I think out of uh, you know some, some degree of uh, uh, obligation, they, 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 they finally relented. Uh, and so Stripe's first user was a company called 280 North, but the interesting thing that then happened was once a couple of people had integrated, and you know, it really was a bit of a pain to convince the first couple of people to do so just because it's, it's never quite the top of mind thing. But they then told their friends uh, that if you wanted to do anything involving internet payments, you should go talk to the Stripe guys. And we started to now assemble this list of people who uh, who basically wanted access. And we, we couldn't support all of them because we hadn't built everything we needed to build. But as we sort of went back to school after this trip to Buenos Aires, we had this sort of 
ever-growing document full of email addresses of mm -hmm. people we were supposed to, to invite. And so we spent the summer as sort of this bootstrapped internship working on uh, inviting all of these people. And, and that's really how we started working on Stripe full-time. Now, were your parents, for instance, when they heard that you were leaving MIT or taking a leave of absence and your brother was taking a leave of absence from Harvard, <laughs> were they like, that's fine because they know how self-starting you guys are? Or was it heavier than that? They were always surprisingly supportive. In hindsight, I sort of appreciate that more than I think I did at the time. I think I was probably you know, more a uh, sort of an entitled teenager who took it all for granted. But whether it was sort of going to this conference in the U.S. when I was you know, 15 or 16 by myself, or whether it was trying to you know, go to college in the U.S. and you know, pursuing all these different paths, uh, they were always surprisingly okay with it, such that when we decided to go work on Stripe full-time, you know, to some degree, I think they were used to things like that. And this this was certainly not the first kind of weird thing we, we had tried to pursue. I, I think when John went to college, they gave him some stern words about how they wanted him to graduate and not to be sort of seduced by some entrepreneurial pursuit along the way. But what <laughs> wasn't quite effective enough. You mentioned that word of mouth played a part in, you know, getting the service or getting Stripe known to other people or companies. Were there one or two companies that came to you that you're like, whoa, this is this is legit. This is not these are not just my friends. W were there any specific larger companies or enterprises that made you take note? Not long after we launched. Now this is obviously skipping forward uh, some period of time. But w when we launched in September 2011, we, we were still very small um, and uh, you know, had a couple dozen customers. And not long after that, a subdivision of Walmart started integrating with Stripe. And this came completely out of the blue from our perspective. And when we talked to these Walmart guys, you know, they, they told us that I mean they, they weren't using Stripe out of developer affinity or or because they were our friends. I mean, we didn't know them. They were using it because it was better technology and because it was better than what they had access to internally. Uh, we, we had a sense that that might happen, but we, we, we sort of didn't really know how long it would take or sort of how far we were uh, sort of along that trajectory. It, it really made us take the opportunity substantially more seriously. Now, in addition to, to starting to get traction from customers, you were raising capital. And in the venture capital community, you also were getting traction uh, and becoming credible. You did raise your first money from Y Combinator. They gave you what twenty to thirty thousand dollars or so to start. I think it was a little bit less. Mm -hmm. I, I don't exactly recall the amount, but I think it was fifteen thousand dollars. And then Peter Thiel, the founder of PayPal, you met him at a dinner, uh, and he became an investor. Can you tell us about that? We went and had lunch with Peter and described to him why you know where we thought PayPal had erred. Uh, they had sort of built this person-to-person, -person, this peer-to-peer -peer payments product, which actually isn't the most interesting or important problem to solve. The most interesting and important problem to solve is how you enable new technology companies, how you enable new businesses to get started, and how you sort of help those scale to uh, address the whole internet and you know, enable people in far-flung geographies to go and to you know, pursue uh, new, new technological ideas. And so we kind of pitched him on all of this and told him why we thought PayPal was all wrong. Uh, and you know, to, to my great surprise, uh, he then essentially immediately agreed to invest. Uh, and I think people sometimes forget that even before he started PayPal, 
Peter wrote about how sort of important economic infrastructure was for the internet and some of the properties it ought to have and so forth. And so I think for Peter, he actually cares about the problem being solved more than he cares that PayPal specifically is the entity to do it. And I think that's kind of uh, to his great credit. The same day, that afternoon, he agreed to invest. You said you had lunch with him. How did you connect with him initially? I believe we were introduced by Paul Graham. Paul Graham being... Y uh, the founder of Y Combinator. You have Andreessen Horowitz and Sequoia and Elon Musk, the founder of um, Tesla and SpaceX. SpaceX. Uh, they're investors. How many investors did you need to speak to before you, you got your handful of investors? We spoke to a couple of investors before Peter invested. Other investors we spoke with uh, thought that this was clearly a somewhat ludicrous idea. And I mean, uh, structurally speaking, it, it sort of was, right? We were going to build financial infrastructure despite no expertise in the area. We had no plans for how to deploy a significant marketing budget. We were just going to go sort of pursue developers directly and sort of build specifically for them. And this was sort of before developer technology had really become remotely popular. And that we were going to sort of try to solve all these hard problems like how you sort of get past some of the geographical limitations of the Internet and how you support new business models and things like that. And so we, we got a you know, not an enormous number, but a, a non-trivial number of no's. And it really wasn't until Peter invested uh, that people started to, to take us seriously. And then subsequent to that, things became substantially easier. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Patrick Collison, co-founder of Stripe, a financial service software platform that powers e-commerce features for more than 100,000 businesses and nonprofits globally. What was harder for you than you thought? The thought of starting something in the business in the financial service sector is inherently challenging, right, with regulatory hurdles and talking to banks, negotiating with with banks, starting merchant accounts, uh, you know, partnering with credit card companies, uh, making sure everything is secure. There were lots of things that were hard that we expected to be hard. We, We knew that talking to banks would be complicated and that we'd have to sort of learn a whole lot about this new domain. I think the things that were harder than I expected were hiring people took much longer than I thought. Uh, I I expected it to be hard. I didn't realize it would take so long. Uh, And especially when you're sort of, when you first try to identify the people you want to hire and then try to convince them to join, rather than going the other way of of just looking at the people who want to join and sort of filtering down to, to the good ones, there, there are many people who now work at Stripe who took us years to convince to join. You gave, uh, I believe, I gave up 10% of your equity for hire, for the first 10 people you hired. I mean, so it, it was very important to you initially to, to get those people. You're right. There's a piece of advice we got pretty early on. It was actually from Sam Altman that nobody ever was glad they gave uh, investors as much as they did. And no one ever wished that they had given employees less. You know, people always kind of wished that investors had less and that employees had more. And so I remember just that comment uh, really sticking with me. And so in every negotiation with investors, we, we really tried to be sort of quite uh, aggressive in terms of minimizing dilution. But in every conversation with, with an employee or with kind of employees in aggregate, we tried to bias towards, towards more ownership. You've had partnerships with Apple Pay and Visa and Twitter that further helped to put you on the map long after your Walmart beginnings. Which one of those was early enough to, to further legitimize, wow, we are on our way? I think our partnership with Alipay 
was actually very significant from our standpoint because you know the the whole sort of trajectory of stripe came from this this isolated upbringing and being in in Ireland and coming to appreciate sort of how significant the internet was in sort of creating new kinds of opportunities and new kinds of connections and uh, affording possibilities to people that really had not previously existed. And so with Stripe, we've always had this really strong sense that it's it's critical uh, to, to make what we build universally available across the world uh, in a way that really had not happened before. And Alipay being a a Chinese company. Exactly. Back in 2014, when we uh, partnered with Alipay, uh, back then uh, uh, Alibaba had not uh, IPO'd, uh, and so the the whole company was a little bit less well-known than it is now. But it's it's the most successful payment mechanism online in China. And it seems so crazy to us that consumers, ordinary people in China, it was so difficult for them to transact with businesses outside of China in the US or in Western Europe or in any other part of the world. And it just seemed like such a bug in the internet, uh, such mm-hmm. as you know, a failure of us as, uh, as infrastructure creators. For us, this was really key and, and sort of exactly the kind of thing that we, we wanted to invest in, we wanted to enable, and we kind of, we're, we're still continuing to focus on uh, and to work on because this notion of building geographically universal economic infrastructure for the internet, it's, it's, still, it's, it's still quite significantly incomplete. You work with your brother in all of this, in John. He focuses on partnerships and sales, and you're um, more of the engineering, the public face of the company. What is that dynamic? Have you always been close or not? We've always, we've always been pretty close. I mean, as, I guess, uh, uh, sort of, again, some degree of necessity to this you know, point of having grown up uh, in, in such a rural place. Um, but if you'd asked me when I was 13 or 14, would I uh, expect to be working with my brother in, in you know, Ten years hence, first I'd sure I'd have told you that I'd never contemplated it, and um, then probably secondly that uh, I I doubted it. But but now that I sort of uh, reflect back a little bit more, I think it's incredibly helpful to have sort of a a co-founder dynamic, sort of built on a a very firm foundation and just a a relationship that's endured for a long time. Most co-founder sets uh, and 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 relationships, even the successful companies, it seems they they tend to break apart. And so I think the, the fact that John and I simply knew each other so well and uh, had, had sort of so much experience with each other enabled us to be sort of very honest and direct and, and sort of straightforward in a way that I think was kind of conducive to Stripe's long-term stability. You mentioned that reading was was a big part of your upbringing. What are some books that, that you recall? Or even was there music in the picture? I played some violin uh, out of... Uh, more obligation than any affinity for the instrument. But reading, I always loved. I clearly remember uh, reading my first book and haven't really stopped since. And what so was the, that? the violin fell by the wayside. The, the first book was Green Eggs and Ham by Dr. Seuss. Uh, and the first book with maybe somewhat more prose and words it was uh, an Enid Blyton book. Um, uh, she's a very famous author among folks in the UK and Ireland, certainly, uh, and has written hundreds of books for children. And so it was one of the famous five series. Now, when we were first starting this interview, I mentioned, I want to thank my nanny, uh, Jill, for the idea to interview you in the first place, because she's from your hometown. She's from Limerick, Ireland, and her family went to high school with you and your brother. 
her fiance, Dan, uh, his family owns a Griffin's Funeral Home in Ireland, which you're aware of? I certainly am. It, it's a very small world. I'm used to in Ireland uh, coming across these uh, sort of shared acquaintances and so on. And the country is only uh, uh, four million people. Um, but it tends to happen less frequently uh, here in San Francisco and, uh, and in the U.S. And so this, this feels like a very Irish experience right now. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. My guest has been Patrick Collison, co-founder of Stripe. Coming up, we'll meet Philip Krim, co-founder of Casper. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Philip Krim, co-founder of Casper, a company focused on sleep. Casper's leading product is its mattress, which can be ordered online and delivered in a box to your door, sometimes within hours if you live in New York City. The company keeps it simple by making a one-type-fits-all mattress for consumers and believes that more choice does not mean more comfort. Casper was launched in April 2014 and had $1 million in sales in its first month. Philip is a graduate of University of Texas. Welcome. Thank you. I want to talk about the number of years one spends sleeping. So if you're, let's say, you have a lifespan of, let's say, 80 years, that's like 25, 26 years, right? Like It you... is. It's about a third of your life. Uh, so it's, it's a, an incredible amount of time. And that was something that, that we took very seriously when thinking about designing our mattress was that it's one of the products that you interact with the most. Now, you had a lot of experience with mattresses. Even before you founded Casper, you had sold about 40,000 beds. Uh, while you were a sophomore at University of Texas, you had started a company called the Merrick Group. Can you describe how you came to sell 40,000 beds? <laughs> Is that right? Uh, yeah, I, over a decade that, mm-hmm. I, that I ran that company mm-hmm. um, and really uh, kind of fell into that category uh, very accidentally. So um, with Group, I was basically looking to avoid getting a summer job when I was in college and had the idea to build websites for products that a manufacturer would then drop ship to customers. And we sold products like window blinds, futons, tickets for sporting events, poker software, uh, and randomly met some mattress manufacturers and sold some mattresses. And, and that's how I learned about this category. There's two parent companies today that own the four biggest manufacturers in this category. They work very closely with retailers to make sure that consumers don't have transparency about what they're buying. And that allows them to keep pricing high and it allows them to keep margins high. And that forces you into a store where you're greeted by a commission salesperson who's highly trained at getting you to spend a lot more money than you have to. So we all have had that experience of going into, let's say, Sleepy's or Bloomingdale's and, you know, laying on the mattress for eight seconds and be like, yes, this feels right. Like, <laughs> you know, it's so hard to really tell the difference between one and the next, it drives you crazy. The reality is, and and what we have said since the beginning was that the only way to know if a bed is right for you is to sleep on it. And oftentimes it means sleeping on it for many nights so Mm -hmm. that your body can readjust to proper anatomical support. And that's why our mattresses come with a hundred night trial. And if at any point you don't love the mattress, just call us up and we'll come pick it up. When it came time to start Casper in 2014, what led you to decide to, to jump into the mattress or the sleep category? I know you had had that former experience, but I mean, you could have picked 
liked anything. So honestly, it was uh, one of my co-founders, Luke, asking, why is there no Warby Parker for mattresses? So it was uh, one of your other co-founders that coincidentally mentioned mattresses without his even knowing that you had this experience in mattresses. Yes, and when they quickly learned about my background, uh, you know, they, they just thought that was a, an amazing coincidence, and um, it, it led us to talking about kind of people's sleep habits and and just a, a conversation that we kept coming back to. And we were we were in the same four of the five of us were in the same co working space, and so we were literally sitting next to each other. So you all met kind of accidentally, completely serendipitously. Where was that co working space? It's in New York. Uh, it, it was uh, on the the west side. One of your co founders is Neil Paris. And yes. coincidentally, too, his dad happens to be a sleep doctor. Yes, there were uh, a, a lot of uh, amazing coincidences that came together. Did you work out of that space together because it had brought you together? No, we did not. We were working out of hotel lobbies. We were kind of bouncing around coffee shops. Uh, eventually ended up in a different co-working space down in Soho. At that time, it was just us and an idea, and you know we had no money, and, and it was just trying to put together the pieces that we thought we'd need to uh, launch Casper. And why the name Casper? So the inspiration of Casper was actually Luke's roommate at the time. We thought it was kind of funny because Luke's roommate is um, like a six-six British guy who did not fit on his twin mattress at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we kind of all got a chuckle out of that, and, and we dismissed it at first. And when we got back together the next day to, to think more about names, and we had what felt like a million names on the list. It was the one that we just kept coming back to. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Philip Krim, co-founder of Casper, the online mattress company. Casper is focused on providing a better night's sleep for its consumers, starting with its mattresses, but extending to other products such as its pillow and sheets as well. Casper also publishes Van Winkles, a website focused on all things sleep. I want to talk about the simplicity. Like when when you just said, said in, among the five of you that that you were just going to make one mattress, one mattress, that's it. Were you initially skeptical or were you all kind of, yes, of course? Honestly, we didn't go into the whole business saying we only need one mattress. It was more of, uh, let's see what we could build and let's see if people liked it. And it turns out when you combine the materials the way we combined it, Everyone loved it. It didn't matter if you said you wanted a firm mattress or a soft mattress or a medium mattress. People loved it. And so as a result of all of this consumer testing, we said, why build another one? How did people find out about the mattress initially? I mean, I did not see any marketing in the early days. Was it all word of mouth? So we raised uh, our seed round was $1.85 million, and we raised that before we launched. Uh, we launched the bed on April 22nd of 2014, and we were fortunate to have a few people write about us uh, and, and report on what we were doing, uh, that we had raised some money and that we had built this mattress and we had just taken a very different approach to an industry that hasn't seen innovation in a long time. Much to our disbelief, people woke up, they read these articles, and they started buying beds. And, and we didn't think that was going to happen. And then the second surprise was that the people that bought the bed, the people that got the bed, started talking about it on social media. They were taking pictures of it. And uh, one of the most surprising things were how many people were filming the unboxing of the mattress. And that's something that's really unique about uh, our experience is that the mattress comes to life in a box that's about the size of a mini fridge. Where were those initial articles? Uh, it were things like TechCrunch. It was very kind of startup-focused outlets. Um, and I, I think, namely, they covered us because we had some funding from some great investors, and uh, and no one had really heard about kind of a, a mattress startup taking venture capital money. Was this your first time taking venture capital? It was, yes. And what was that experience like for you? 
Ben Lear of Lear Hippo Ventures led our seed round. Uh, they're one of the top seed firms in the country. How did you meet him? Uh, we met him. We were actually introduced to him through our branding agency. This was actually after we had been told no by dozens and dozens of investors. And so, you know, we at this point, we were feeling a little dejected, and we had complete confidence uh, that we were going to do this no matter what, even if we didn't raise a penny. And then, of course, you know, we meet Ben after we're told no so many times, and Ben just immediately got it. Why do you think you got so many no's? So I think there were a couple of things. Um, one is that traditional angel and venture investors in this space always think about things in lifetime value. And how could you possibly have lifetime value if you're just selling them a mattress? And what I would come back with that is saying that the mattress industry is huge. Over $14 billion a year is spent by consumers in the U.S. at retail on mattresses. So, you know, that's a that's a big pie we could get our, our small piece of. Uh, and they, it just didn't resonate with them because it's not how you traditionally look at e-commerce businesses. Uh, that and then at this time, again, we weren't live. And so we didn't have our brand fully baked. We didn't have our experience fully baked. So when someone comes and tells you, oh, I'm going to build a really cool mattress brand that's that's going to be totally different than anything out there, you know, it's hard to wrap your mind around that. And so I get it. It does take a, a leap of faith, certainly, to kind of see what we see and and. Um, and then come Series B round, you raise $55 million and um, included in that, in addition to the Pritzker family and institutional venture partners, are celebrity investors like Leonardo DiCaprio and Tobey Maguire and Adam Levine of Maroon 5, the, the, the band. Um, how, did, how did these guys come in? You know, it's funny. When you tell people just how terrible the mattress buying experience is, whether you're a professional investor, an institutional investor, or just a celebrity or angel investor... Uh, everyone kind of gets the opportunity that that there's a space that's big and really important to people, sleep and sleep products, and it's really broken today. So with them, it was just you know introductions from other investors or from other friends, and uh, it's great to have them uh, on board because they, they get how it takes to build a brand, whether that's your personal brand or a, or a company brand. In addition to uh, having this products company, you also publish or fund a media website called Van Winkles, which is focused on everything sleep-related. Why is it called Van Winkles, by the way? Van Winkles goes back to um, the early days when we were trying to come up with a name for uh, the business. I was championing Van Winkles. I thought it was a great name, and it's named after Rip Van Winkle because he fell asleep for 40 years. And uh, I ended up getting outvoted, and we ended up all liking Casper more. So Casper became the name, um, but Van Winkles just always stuck with me and with the founders. And so when it came time to launch an editorial venture, we thought it was the perfect homage to the, the beginning days of Casper. What was your your thinking surrounding that? Just that one would fuel the other, kind of? Um, honestly, the idea was that we thought sleep was such an interesting subject, and yet no one was owning or kind of uh, furthering the conversation around sleep. Sleep is so universal. Everyone needs a, a night of sleep. And yet everyone has such a personal connection to it. You know, we even talk about at Casper how... There were big health movements that, that changed the way people thought about healthy uh, living and well-balanced living. And whether it's exercise, which happened you know decades ago, or healthy eating, we think sleep is kind of the next big pillar on that. Ten years ago, people were bragging about how little sleep they got. And, oh, you were an investment banker who was getting crushed at work and you, you stayed all, and pulled an all-nighter or a student. Now you don't hear that anymore. I want to talk about operations uh, in in the early days. You had trouble with fulfillment in the early days because demand kind of outstrips the supply of the mattresses. Um, can you talk about that? 
Absolutely. Pick up. I, I mean, what a hot problem to have, but go ahead. <laughs> it's uh it, it was it was really painful. Um, you know, at its peak I think customers were waiting six to eight weeks for mattresses and, and that was something that drove us crazy because we knew these customers, you know, were were giving us good faith to to try the product and then to to be so delayed was really painful. So the first day when we realized we were gonna be out of stock uh, and we realized people were not going to have a bed when we promised them. Neil thought of let's just send them an airbed that we could buy on Amazon and ship ship directly to consumers or to our customers. And so we were we were scrambling, pulling out our credit cards, buying airbeds for customers, shipping that, saying you know we really apologize. Uh, here's a gift to you so that you have something to sleep on. And it took us many months to to build up the proper amount of uh, supply capacity, and mm-hmm. it was a, a a huge struggle in the business, but. Uh, Fortunately, it's it's behind us, and, and now we're in inventory positions and, and ship on time within 24 hours. Whose idea was the bike? Uh, honestly, we didn't even know that the box would fit in the beginning, and so we were just looking for courier partners on, on literally the launch day to deliver some of these beds. And so the couriers pulled up on this cargo bike, and we were just like, let's see if this fits, and it, it fit perfectly. It's actually become, I think, one of the more iconic images of the brand in the early days was this cargo bike with the mattress on it, and I think the bike had matching colors randomly, and it's been awesome. You have a, a showroom in, in NoHo on Bond Street, and people can kind of just come in and try the bed out if they want to. You also have one in L.A. and some pop-up stores. When you thought about the business initially, was it strictly kind of an e-commerce company? The day we launched, we had customers randomly coming by the office, knocking on the door and saying, I'd like to try the mattress. And so we quickly set up the back third of our office uh, as a bedroom. And so anytime someone would come in, we'd happily greet them and, uh, you know, offer them iced coffee or water and let them try the bed. And uh, it it stuck. There's no ground floor presence, so you would only find out about it if you looked on our website or our mobile site. But every day we have tons of people coming by and laying on the bed now. I want to talk about uh, your personal life. Uh, You grew up in Texas, in Houston. What did your parents do? Uh, So my dad's always been an entrepreneur. He's originally a New Yorker, but um, he had ran his own fishing boats out of Sheepshead Bay in Brooklyn in New York. And in the late 70s, when the oil business in Texas was picking up, and specifically offshore oil in the Gulf, he had taken the fishing boats and converted them to offshore supply and crew boats that serviced rigs in the Gulf. And so uh, that's when he moved down to Texas, and and he met my mom. And uh, again, that was late 70s, early 80s, and so he did that for most of my childhood. You mentioned that you avoided conventional jobs. What, What were one or two that you had? If any, oh, uh, I mean, when I was when I was in high school, I, I would have a summer job at one of the local country clubs, um, working there. Uh, Doing what? Uh, just um, running the uh, the food cart around the course. Uh, that was one, or just you know at the clubhouse, um, kind of just a variety of jobs. Uh, one summer before college, I worked at a software company that was developing technology so that companies could monitor chats within the company for compliance issues. So lesson learned is don't talk about coworkers on chats at a company where they monitor your chats was, was something that... Uh, you don't do at Casper. Do. yeah. <laughs> uh, and how about your mom? My mom, uh, she's currently working in Houston, uh, but growing up she was a stay-at-home mom. And do you have siblings? I do. I have a younger sister who's a nurse. You know the term sleep tight? Uh, yes. Do you know where it comes from? Uh, I could guess, but I'm not certain, no. 
people used to sleep on or do sleep on like ropes, right, on the, for their mattress. And if you pull the rope tight, it ensures a, a good night's sleep. That's um, interesting. I, I will have to read more about that one. That would not have been my guess. <laughs> what was harder for you than you thought in the early days? Because, you know, you had such great traction and acceptance from consumers. And, yes, you had the hiccup uh, with inventory. But what has been harder for you than you thought? So one thing is, is hiring is definitely harder than I thought. And no one, no one told me as a founder how much time you would just have to spend with hiring. And uh, certainly when you're a young company, you know, no one knows how it's going to go. And, you know, again, people perceived us as this mattress company. So how could what you're doing be interesting? So hiring was certainly a struggle where we spent a lot of time. Another thing that was maybe not harder than I thought, but uh, something that was just interesting was this founder dynamic. And so three of my co-founders had known each other for a long time. They went to school together at Brown University. And so, uh, you know, Jeff and I were were the new guys of part of the team. And uh, in looking back, it was so important. And and we just had become very good friends. And and I think it's just because we we spent so much time kind of thinking about the business and and even outside of that, just, just having fun as friends. And so, it's something I, I probably took for granted that, that you need to do and, and invest in, and, and it's just worked mm-hmm. out great, though. Well, you're lucky that you were able to navigate that with, you know, five founders and not two founders. Tremendously lucky. I mean, mm-hmm. five five co-founders is very rare. What might I not know about you? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, recently married. What is your wife's name? My wife's name is Kimberly. And what does she do? She just got her master's from Columbia in public health. How did you meet her? I uh, I met her actually on the roof of my building in the city. Um, so one of my friends went to Syracuse University with her uh, as an undergrad, and he was visiting us from L.A., and we were both friends with him, and so he decided to combine friends so that he could see everyone uh, while he was here, and uh, we just hit it off there. When did you meet her? It was before Casper. She saw kind of when I got excited about the idea of Casper and... Uh, tells the story fondly of me kind of waking up in the middle of the night saying like, you know, this this could be something really exciting and then uh, saw the five of us get together and, and go for it. You know, you'd say in the middle of the night, you'd turn over and, you know, what were some of those conversations? What, were, what are some details maybe about uh, that you might remember? <laughs> you're, you're asking that question made me think about it. It's, um, on Van Winkles, we talk about all the time how looking at blue light is bad for your sleep. And when you look, that's why you're not supposed to look at your phone when you wake up in the middle of the night, because it, it's uh, then harder to fall back to sleep. And inevitably, I always still look at my phone and then the light comes on. And then if she sees the light, she'll say, what are you thinking about? And so that will spur random conversations at times. And to this day, I still look at my phone, even though I know that's bad for sleep and, and not proper sleep etiquette. <laughs> In fact, you guys should take the phone out of your room. We should, yes. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's funny. There was tons of, like, prescriptive sleep content out there. You should take your phone out of the room. You should look at your computer before bed and just things that, like, I'm a big sleep advocate, and yet I would never do those things because it's just not going to be conducive to my lifestyle. So how many hours of sleep did you get last night? So unfortunately, I had a a dinner work event, and so I didn't get home till later than I would have liked. Uh, So I probably got six and a half, seven hours. It's not bad, but I'm someone who needs a lot of sleep since I was a little baby. (laughs) And and as my wife will say, gets cranky when he doesn't get enough sleep. (laughs) Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. My guest has been Philip Krim, co-founder of Casper. If you would like to learn more about the show, please visit our website at fromscratchradio.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Jess G. Harris or find us on Facebook. 
I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch.